0: We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. We didn't get to the topic in our last podcast about re- getting a G-tube. And I know that's something that you guys uh, have an experience and and you have some, I mean, just from the little conversations that I know that you have, and as far as awareness on Facebook, you bring in some really um enlightening stories and fantastic (laughs) stories about experiences there. So I'm wondering if you could just walk us through maybe learning you needed a G-tube, why you needed the G-tube, and then the process of getting a G-tube, and then, of course, how you just embraced the G-tube at your home. So It
1: was a day after he was excavated. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. They just took him straight into surgery for a G-tube. So the conversation, when we knew that we needed a G-tube, we kind of had the conversation at some point, Evan might not feed by mouth, um, was the day he got diagnosed. And then we got put in the hospital, was put into a medically induced coma, he was intubated, so he was on life support. And then um, he was extubated on our um, fourth, no, yeah, fourth wedding anniversary, same of mine. And then um, the next day, the doctor comes in and it's like, so the intensivist comes in and goes, so I have a 330 um, slot open for you guys for surgery. And I was like, huh? Like, wait, we just got extubated. What are you talking about? Surgery. He's like, he's going to need a feeding tube, like a G-tube. And and then they walked out and I was like, did I miss something? Like, what the heck's a G-tube? And it was like, oh, so I remember pulling the head nurse in, like, she's like overlooks everything. And I was like, I don't know what a G-tube is. Like, do we have to have a G-tube? Do we have to do this right now? Like, what? Like, I just couldn't understand it. So she, she takes a, it's called a Mickey button, and she pulls it out, and it looks like a button, literally a button, that is attached to a balloon. So the object is, is that it would cut a hole in the stomach, stick the G-tube, the Mickey button in it and then fill up the hole so that it couldn't come out of the stomach so that the food could go through a straw basically from the button through the balloon and then um, would feed Evan through his stomach. So the balloon would be in the stomach, the the button would lay on the outside of the skin and I, good thing I saw it because when she was talking about it, like I couldn't understand how a balloon would have a hole in it and how it could still be a balloon. So now I understand there's a straw that goes through it and then the balloon wraps or like, is around. So it stays kind of like a floaty, if you would think of like putting a floaty on a child's arm. Um, and it would just hold it in place. So <laughs> we, we meet with the sur this is awful. It's, it's funny looking back, not awful for me. The whole situation was weird. So go in, knowing that we're gonna get a Mickey button, go down to surgery. We're talking to the surgeon right beforehand. I don't know this guy from Adam, right? And I know you're not supposed to say names, but I'm gonna tell you his criteria. He is head of surgery, all general surgery at OU physicians. So he's general, like anything that has to do with surgery. He is the chief of surgery over there. So he does everything. I have no idea who he is. And I just kept going, All I'm thinking is he's going to cut a hole in my son, cut a hole in his stomach, reach for the, 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 or cut a hole in his, like in his abdomen, reach for his stomach, sew his stomach to his like abdomen, to keep it there, and then stick this balloon in there. So I was like, how often, like, how many times have you done this? And I remember him looking at me and going, how many times have you brushed your teeth in your life? And I was like, huh? And I remember looking at my husband, and he was like, I was like, you're, some words. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe he just said that to me. He couldn't have just said this. I do this all the time. Like, it's no worry. Like, this is, it was like, how many times have you brushed your teeth in your life? I was like, oh, my gosh, you're going to cut my son open. And this is how I'm supposed to feel about you. Cool. So we went across the street. Um, and I kept saying like, so we're going to do a Mickey button, right? This is what it's going to look like. And he tells me, well, we'll just find, well, whatever we find back there, we'll use. And I was like, what is that supposed to be? And he goes, I mean, it could be a Mickey button. It could be a catheter. We'll just, whatever we find back there, we'll we'll just use that. And I kept thinking, we knew that we were having the surgery today. Like this has been a planned thing. Why do we not have the equipment for it? So like, I'm like, surely they're going to put it. Okay, I'm not going to think about it. We're going to go across the street because it's supposed to take like 30 minutes. Tim and I were going to go across the street to Panera, grab sandwiches, and bring them back. And I guess when we were over there, they called Sam's phone because it was a 405, even though I told them to call my phone number, which was a 972 number. It's a Dallas number. And Sam's phone died. So they couldn't. um, They they didn't reach us. So we got back over and they never decided to call mine. They said it was out of state that they weren't going to call. It. it was long distance. And I was like, what? So you get over there. Surgeon's already gone. We haven't even been gone 20 minutes. Surgeon's already left the building. Like he's gone. And, um, they bring us upstairs to the PICU and I go to look at it to see what it looks like. It's a freaking 14 inch catheter sticking out of him. Not a Mickey button, not the small little thing I was told. It is a huge ass straw sticking out from his stomach that is stitched onto his stomach. All the 14 inches of a big rubber straw with this like four, like an X looking thing on the end. So you can like move it to like open the chambers up. And I was like, oh my gosh, we did the wrong surgery. What are we doing? I remember just like panicking and the hospitalist comes in and he looks at him and goes, yeah, And then they're having, they had stuff, really bad stuff happening in the PICU, like this other uh, patient had a lot of stuff. So he was like running in, looked at it, and goes, yep, looks good, and walks out. And I was like, what do you mean it looks good? This looks awful. Like, what are we doing? So, yeah. So that was the beginning of a long journey. So we had that. um, And we got on the plane two weeks later with that. And let me tell you, I fed the bed. I have fed everything besides my son more than times than you know, just because feeding tubes are difficult um, and you have to laugh about it. When it happens, you're like, I remember being on the plane the first time and not having the that four thing, which this isn't what we put signed up for. None of this is what we signed up for, but this 14-inch catheter on the end of it has this little X thing. You plug your feeding tube in and you have to turn it to have the gates basically open for it to pump through. Well, it I didn't turn it, so it was pumping out the side, so it was literally getting me and Evan soaked on this plane, and Evan's screaming, and I just think, we're the parents, we're the parents who have the screaming kid on the plane, and I don't even know what to do, and like, that plane ride was awful, because the flight attendant didn't understand that he needed a pull socks, and it had to stay on, she kept telling me I had to turn it off, it was just a mess, so <laughs> I remember looking down, and like, picking him up, and he is completely soaked. breast milk because i'm still feeding i'm i'm still pumping and feeding him through a a g-tube and it's all over the boppy that i had him laying on it's all over my pants and i have no change of clothes all my stuff's underneath and i just remember looking at sam going so this is the beginning this is the beginning of many (laughs) like and you know what i thought it was like the worst thing in the world like when someone says your child needs to get a feeding tube and it feels like that, but then after you do it, it's it makes you, I don't know, like Evan needs it and I would never regret doing it. And sometimes it's even easier. It sounds awful, but sometimes it's more convenient doing a feeding tube than it would be to sit with him for with a bottle and like try and try and try. I hear a lot of people
0: talk about perks of a feeding tube, you know, not that we all wish we had feeding tubes, but the perk of being able to give medication and, you know, they're not spitting it back out at your face. And
1: so there's, there, there you got to embrace the perks, I guess, when, when you, when you can. So. And we didn't do a Fundo application when Evan had his G-tube. Um, my dad had talked about a Fundo and like actually explained it to us. And he was like, if, it, if he's not throwing up, I wouldn't I wouldn't do it unless you have to. And then some surgeons, they want to do it at the same time. And then other surgeons, like they're getting away from it. So <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that we didn't do it at that time. Um, yeah. And we still don't have
0: one. So have you had to go back and do uh, additional surgeries with the G-tube or it all, like it was one surgery and he's now it's the there and-
1: as He has been, and we haven't even moved up even though he's grown. We've <laughs> changed it from a Mickey, Mickey button to a mini button um, which is just smaller. And we did that because he was getting, um, the granulation tissue around the G-tube a lot, just because it's a little bit heavier. Um, so the mini button, I'm like a huge advocate for it. It glows in the dark, which is super cool. Um, so if you do have kiddos that do need G-tubes, see if you can get one that's a mini button, just to make it more fun with all the medical stuff that we all go through. It's cool to have, if you're going to have something different on you it's cool to have a cool accessory so you breastfed you so so you pumped and then you fed through the tube
0: through the g-tube for a long time and then kind of walk me through some of that process of
1: Evan breastfed till he was five months old and then at five months old um he got thrush and so did I so during that like month period when before like between diagnosis um he stopped wanting to breastfeed so we started just strictly bottle feeding and then when Evan went in for his diagnosis in that first hospital stay it was rough and I still pumped and we gave it all through his g-tube and so the first feeding we had they were going to try doing gravity feed um so the hospital we were at which I absolutely love and. Um, their nurses don't see very many G-tube fed kids, um, not on the floor. And this sweet guy who was a nurse, one of our favorite nurses now, um, took four ounces of my of my milk and put it in a big old syringe and let gravity just take a hold of it. And I remember my dad looking at me being like, so how long does it normally take for a kid to, to have four ounces? I was like, I have no idea. I'm like, how long does it take for you to drink four ounces? I mean, you're not going to drink it all at once. And I turn around, and the four ounces are gone. And I was like, oh, no. Okay, like, I guess is, I didn't know. He didn't know. I figured, like, he would know more than me. And I was like, surely he's not going to get sick. Like, everything will be fine. And 20 minutes later, Evan is just covered in vomit from all that milk. So we went to... um we were doing four ounces, four times a day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then an overnight feed. But I wasn't starting our overnight feed until like midnight. And most people, this is what they tell you. Like you're gonna do your feed and then whatever long it takes you. So like in the beginning, it was really, really short time, like big big volume, short amount of time. And then I would set my alarm at midnight Get up at midnight to start his overnight feed. I did that for three, two, three years. Nobody told me I could combine the the nights, like the night with his last one. So I could have just started his feed and let him eat it. So, I mean, forever I was waking up at 12, like 12 o'clock, not needing to. Like nobody, I wish they would have told me, this is how many ounces he needs in a day. You figure it out. But everybody says do breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then an overnight feed. And by that time, I I talk to moms that are still getting up at midnight. And I'm like, don't. No, no doctor is getting up at midnight to feed their kid. Like, what are we doing? Um, so and I like and I laugh at myself because I'm like, I should have I'm I feel like I'm a very educated person, right? But when you listen to a doctor, because that's not in the same like wheelhouse is what you've known. You take the doctor's word. or like, really all I've learned not taken away from doctors. They just read a different book than I did. And they graduated with a different degree, but they don't, doesn't mean that they're any smarter than I am. They're still doing the guessing game and trying to figure it out. So, um, I love doctors. I love nurses more. I love RTs. <laughs> I love respiratory therapists. M. Um, But it's one of those because doctors tend to to say it with like the, without a doubt type attitude. And it's really hard for you to, if you have questions, not even that you have questions, but they are just very sure of themselves where like I had to learn, like they don't come home with me. They don't know what our everyday looks like. So we were doing bolus feeds, gravity fed in the beginning. And then they went from that to doing feeding from a pump, um, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then an overnight. And then now with Evan not digesting properly. And that's kind of since last year, we've just been fe- feeding at like a slower rate continuous. So he's always on the pump. Okay. Which it, it's, our goals have changed. So like that's, especially when he doesn't digest, that's better for us so that sometimes he's whenever he is digesting he is able to digest that food and then whenever he's not he's only missing like a certain amount that now that he's on continuous feeds um
0: is that just a progression of the minkies as far as like his inability to digest certain
1: foods not just um i would say that everything that evan does is because of evan and i think it's like he has seizures because he has minkies That's just something that happens. So I would say that not every child is going to stop digesting food just because they have minkies. I think that Evan is having some neurological issues, whether I can see him or not, and that's causing him to stop digesting during those periods of time. So is it a minkies Uh thing? Yes and no. I don't think that it's like, check the box off, this is minkies. I just think that it's... It's a neurological thing that's happening.
0: And so the continuous feeds is to allow him to digest what he can, when he can, when there's not that neurological stuff that's
1: going on. And I think it also, talking about it being, I think it, I think it gives us, me and my nurses, kind of a, a break of counting calories and counting ounces, where it's like, we know that he's getting something always, and whenever we do have to stop him. Like, we just make sure that he gets that back, whether it's Pedialyte, just for fluids. We're not... So there's some moms who that number, that weight number is a goal for them. And for me, it's not. Because the fatter Evan is, the harder it's going to be for him to breathe. And our biggest thing is respiratory. It's not neurological. So I don't see... We see seizures every day, but not to a point where I would give rescue meds. Like, it's like here and there. It's not taking up the whole day or even part of the day. He might not even have them. It's just kind of hit or miss on what the weather is outside too. And that causes a lot of our issues Um, when the barometric pressure changes. um, I've noticed we have more neurological issues, but it's respiratory, it's airway. And it's him being a little junky, um, saliva, him aspirating, like all those things are our biggest issues of, of keeping him healthy. So, so let's touch on that respiratory, um, I guess piece
0: a little bit. So what is, is it the minkies that is causing because, or he's just, uh, his inability to move around because that's what it is, or tell me a little bit more about the respiratory stuff.
1: It's a little bit of everything. So minkies causes weakness muscle like weak muscles your muscles don't build like yours and mine do and most of the boys are very skinny very um, and they don't have muscle tone like i could never do this with evan like this would never happen he'd be a floppy baby like i would i would never even think about doing this with evan he would look like a bag of sand Um,
0: And for everyone that's listening, we've got our guest Ryan here, and we're doing all the baby moves with Ryan, and he's loving every one of them.
1: (laughs) But so with him, like, he would never, I mean, he's standing up, like, Ryan right now is standing, like, Evan never did that, ever. And we never held our head up on our own, but maybe like a handful of times, and it was for brief moments. So with that, his airway has been restricted, um, and a lot of boys that have, not everyone, but a lot of them sometimes do get traged just because it's that floppy airway and it's just an easier way to breathe. And like, that's a personal decision. And I give applause to a lot of people because we've had that conversation and I don't think we'll trade Evan. Um, Evan's happy and healthy right now and um, his lungs are good, but to put him through a surgery, I don't think he'll get off of it. I think he's too weak to be put under um, through a vent and I'm not from intubation to be put on just a trach. Um, And we all, me and the doctors, all we have this conversation multiple times and it's we, Sam and I have, we are okay with, that's the hard part about being a special needs family is being okay to say no and being okay to say we're done. And to stop, and we are we're not doing any more surgeries. So respiratory-wise, um, a lot of it, like I said, is airway or positional. So if he's not breathing or it's turning colors, sometimes he just needs to be moved. Like he's got something stuck. And um, I mean, an ambu bag. When people say bagging, it's way different when you have a child who has an airway issue. We haven't used it knock on wood in years, but we've used it a couple times here at home and definitely a couple times in the hospital. And, um, and there are never good feelings because it's, I mean, we're using it, hoping to get whatever stuck in Evans, not even his airway, but your lungs are like, what we were told were like grapes. It's like a vine with grapes on it. So you have, it's not just like, we all think it's like the lungs that you see in a picture. Like everyone has these lungs and they look so beautiful when really they have these, these grapes and sometimes those grapes get really sticky and they stick to themselves or they shrivel up. And like, I know Evan's left side, cause he lays on that side. He favors that side when he lays, they're diminished, they're smaller. So he's not getting big airflow. Those, those little grapes aren't popped open. So he has a lot of those issues. So we set him up and we pat his back and pat him and, get him moving around the best we can, hoping that we'll open those lobes up so he can breathe better. But I think he's just learned that this is just how it is. Like every every child is very good about adapting to their circumstances. And Evan's been awesome at that. And he teaches me that I need to, I need to start being more okay with our circumstances and just loving life. And, you know, people always want to say like, It's all expectations. If you can manage your expectations and like actually not have them, life is a lot more fun instead of wishing and wanting and just, it's okay to have expectations, but to have real expectations and like be okay when those expectations aren't met. And those, I think that's where your grief comes in is what should have been, what could have been, how this isn't fair, how all that stuff comes it's just expectations not being met of what you wanted your life to look like.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned you've had those conversations with the doctor about the trach. and so, so would you ever put him on
1: a ventilator? We are DNR. We have had that conversation when he turned two, and um, he had. Remember, I was telling you about like his seizures before were very mild. You couldn't see him. They were like, "Is mm, that a seizure?" So when he turned two, he had these coughing fits. And I kept saying, something is wrong, something's wrong. So we brought him in. They are like, he's not sick. And I was like, I don't think he's sick. I think something's wrong. And so for a week, they did all this blood work, all these, everything you could possibly think of. And then all of a sudden I walk upstairs and I just told the nurse, I think he's seizing. Like I, I hadn't even seen him. I was just like, I went to lunch, came back and I was like, I need to tell somebody this. I think he's seizing. I think he's coughing when he's not seizing and then he's seizing. And then he's coughing again. And she was like, well, we started his feedback. It had been almost a week. And she was like, it was 10 mils, which is like a syringe. It's real small. It's not any. Old. So an ounce is or an ounce is 30 mils. And um, so this is only 10. So this is a third of it. And then think about your eight ounce glass of water. So it's nothing. Um, and he ate that for an hour. I walked in and he was wrenching like he was going to throw up. And I was like, what on earth? So I called the nurse in and all of a sudden he just randomly stops wrenching and closes his eyes. And I was like, what are you doing? And I opened his eyes and they were full blown ticking. And I was like, oh. I and this is, this is a different hospital stay. So this is now he's two, not six months anymore. We've had multiple hospital stays in between. And I was just like, oh my gosh, he's seizing. Like I, it wasn't a question of, well, is this is a seizure. It was uh, full-blown. So they gave him Adivant, which I don't like because Evan goes into respiratory distress and that the RT that we've known forever, she is in there too as we're giving the Advant because we videotaped Evan and sent it to the neurologist and she was like, we need to get him to stop now. And they're holding Evan's airway open. So what that looks like is if you're flat on a bed, they're lifting his whole head up and like extending his neck so everything is open, um, and right when they gave the Ativan, I text Sam, I was like, I need you to come here, they're giving them Ativan, and then maybe like five minutes after giving it, the doctor walks in, assesses Evan from the bottom of the bed, that um, intensivist, like I said, we go to the ICU all the time, so we're in the ICU, the intensivist looks at him, and then Sam walks in like immediately after, and I was shocked that he was so close, and then I just remember looking at the doctor and being like, if we need to have the conversation, let's have it right now. Because this is where it always leads to is what are we going to do with Evan? So we walk into not the conference room, but like their kitchen area because it was closer. And we sat down and it was, I think Evan is seizing. And I think this is Evan digressing. And I, this is what he was saying. I don't, I think that if I put him on a ventilator, if I intubate him, he's not sick. So if I intubate him, we're just giving him time. Like there's not, he's not going to get better. This is Evan. Evan will have to get better on his own. So Sam and I looked at each other and said, okay, we're just going to see what he does. We walked out and Evan had calmed down enough that nobody was hoping in his airway. This is like 45 minutes. He probably, was, the doc- nurses were holding his airway open and we decided not to intubate. And we didn't see Evan for like nine hours, which, like I said, we had seizures and then he would be fine. Like we never had that posticular anything. So I remember the neurologist came in and said, do you want to take him home? And I was like, oh, hell no. Like he just had a seizure. I don't like, what are you saying? Are we going to go home to die? Or is this like, did I lose him? Like, what are we doing? And she was like, I don't, I can't, I can't. I don't know. And I said, no, I need more time up here. Because if he's going to pass, I'd rather him pass here than at home. And um, I remember that night, and our a respiratory therapist, who we've all become, everybody loves Evan. Whether you meet him, it's like this automatic, you can't not like him. He's a very likable guy. And um, she just was like, just want to let you know, if anything happens tonight, I have to hit that blue button. And this is what it's going to look like. You're gonna have at least 20 doctors in here. You're gonna have someone over him doing compressions on his chest. You're gonna have somebody else putting a tube down his throat. You're gonna have this, that, and the other. And I was just like, uh, like I just wanted to throw up. And I'm like, chest compressions on Evan. His chest is is formed differently because of how he's been laying for so many years. He likes his left side. We keep him comfortable, but his because of that, his chest has caved on one side a little bit. So if you were going to do chest compressions on him, all of his ribs would would just crack open. They would just be a wreck. So not only are you going to try to save him, but you're going to do so much damage that he's going to be in so much pain for, I don't know how long it's going to take for him to heal. And that just, the sight and the thought of that made me sick. So the next day when Sam got there, I was like, We sat down with him, we kind of had the same conversation and Sam was like, Oh heck no, we don't want that happening. So I was like, so are we okay saying a DNR, but we can use an ambu bag if we need to, and like any breathing stuff, just no compressions. And I said, no intubation unless we say otherwise. And he said, yes. So we like sat down with a doctor we had never met before. He was like the first day, I mean, we were there the first time. Like he, they had gotten a new doctor in there and then we had this hospital stay. So we sat down with him and I knew that he kind of had reserves against us because he didn't know who we were. But I think the fact that we said we want a DNR because of this reason, he had more respect for us and we had more respect for him because he understood we're at this point not doing things to Evan, but doing things for Evan. And that was a big turning point of saying we're okay with letting Evan be Evan. And then after those nine hours, Evan popped up like nothing had happened. And we came home and he was good, of course. Oh so, my goodness. <laughs> so we have at home though, we have a DNR and it's because I trust my nurses. Um, and that's, I know that's kind of rare sometimes. Um, we've had um, we've had a nurse named Hannah who has been with us since Evan was 15 months old during that hospital stay or before that hospital stay, and um, maybe in like 10 months hospital stay. Um, They had talked about putting Evan in the children's center and I just couldn't put myself to doing that. I wanted a baby so bad. And now that I had one, I just couldn't see myself giving somebody else that baby. And I thought I don't have a lot of time with him and the time that I do have, I wanna have it. I don't wanna have to like drive up to a facility to see him. And that was my, a lot of parents don't feel the same way. And a lot of parents that's their own, how their household works, but it was just me, a stay at home mom, with a kid that I've been doing for so long. Um, And they said, fine, we'll do in-home nursing. And I was like, sure, send me a nurse. Let's see how this goes. And I didn't know how tired I was until she showed up. And she took over. And it wasn't that she took over. I just remember looking at her. She's this cute blonde-haired girl, super cute cheerleader. Like, had all this energy. She came in and swooped up Evan. And I just was like, okay. I was like, I'm gonna go to Target and then I came back and then I'd go to Sam's and I'd come back and she's like, you know, you can stay out. I'm like, yeah, I'm not ready yet. Like, and she let me. And I just was like, she's, and um, he, I, I just, I wasn't ready to let go. But then the second that I did, I was like, I need to take a nap. It was like, I just hit a wall. It was like, I was on survival mode, but I just, I, I needed that still that support of me being, mom too so like I wanted to do diaper changes and I wanted and I kept telling her like I know you know how to do this you've been trained but I've been doing this for so long and I know it works for Evan like if I'm hovering over you it's not because I don't think you you're gonna do a good job it's just like I still want to have some control and she understood and I think because she understood so much her and I got along so well and she's been with us Evan's five and a half now she's been with us forever. (laughs) Like, we talk about things, I'm always like, ah, we need to run that by Hannah first, and Sam's like, well, I mean, I'm like, well, no, because if we're going to do an overnight or anything, Hannah's the girl that stays with them, like nobody else. Like, she just does so well, and I, we've had, we had another nurse that stayed around for two years, and she's now in labor and delivery, and she's exactly where she needs to be, but we miss her, and then we just got a new nurse, um, So we don't rotate nurses a lot. Yeah. We do until we find our one and then they stick with us. I mean, that says something. And even that nurse is supposed to come over today during her off day at work, come hang out with Evan and Ryan. So, I mean, it makes me feel good that like these nurses like, they're not just nurses anymore. They're family. And like, that's really hard because they tell you to put this wall up. But it's like, besides me and Sam, like Evan knows Hannah as another adult that like cares for him and they would do anything for Evan.
0: Yeah. Hey. I want to go back to the DNR piece. Um, and yeah. and not that I love to talk about DNRs that they are, they're, they're a heavy subject, I guess. And so when you, when you talk about a DNR and yet you still go to the hospital for certain things. So can you maybe explain or, or share a little bit about that, why do you go to the hospital then, or what would you go for?
1: So we, when we got the DNR, Evan wasn't sick. Was it emotional? Absolutely, because it was saying we were okay of not doing something. So, but also during that hospital stay, I wanted to come home with extra help, so I asked for a hospice palliative care. So um, before leaving, because like our nursing don't like our nursing programs don't do after. So, they'll do to the point of death, and then it's there's no help. So, it's like, where do we go from there? I remember I was talking about how I wanted the funeral home and all this stuff being put together. And so, during that hospital stay, we got we came home with a company who we absolutely love. um, And they've been nothing but the best. I mean, they do, they will even tell me, like, hey, if you want to go to the hospital, now's probably the time because they do palliative care, not. That I mean, they help with the end of life, but their whole thing is how to keep the kiddo home healthy and safe and comfortable. So if he's not comfortable and they can't fix it and we want him to be comfortable, we have to go to the hospital. So um, that was where we were. So um, back to your question of when do we go to the hospital and what that looks like. So if Evan is having an issue before was if he was sick and we thought it would help by going in, then we would go. But if Evan was just in also seizures, we would still go. Um, because we can fix seizures with medications for the most part. But if it was to intubate and not know, we probably wouldn't have intubated. We would have just let Evan go. Um, but it's one of those, we have a plan that our, our number is 14 that if Evan is sick with croup or, I don't know, RSV or something that he can get over, common cold, um, and he just needs that extra time and all the things we're throwing at him isn't working, we could assess. And if we thought that, you know, everyone was on board, that if we got him to a better place, he would be healthier. And we would do, intubation for 14 days, and after 14 days, we would reassess, and then if he's not getting any better or isn't showing any big signs, we would just take him off and let him pass. That was kind of our, we've always had that. We didn't want him to be on for more than, after 14 days, I mean, if you have a cold, it'll probably last by the time you actually get sick, coughing, sneezing, no more than a week, so we figured if we gave him two weeks, that would give us some some way of, of knowing whether or not he was going to overcome it. So when we, so here's a good one, um, age three, because remember three was that, that, that number we were given, which I hate that number. (laughs) Um, so he was about to turn three. I remember it was like the end of September, early October. And I noticed Evan wasn't doing well, but nobody else saw it. Hospice didn't see it. Sam didn't see it. Everyone thought I was crazy. <laughs> Bless you. Um, and Sam even said, like, he's turning three. It's in your head. He'll be fine. Like, I don't, I don't see it. I don't know. So, Hospice sh- shows up one day and he's breathing really bad, but not the worst I've ever seen him. But you could tell he just doesn't feel good. So, um, Hospice looks at me and goes, um, "Are we like?" having the conversation of going to the hospital. And I looked at her, I'm like, what are you talking about? We're fine. <laughs> she was like, we are not fine, Lauren. Like, this is bad. And I was like, what do you mean this is bad? So now I'm thinking, now I'm questioning myself because before I kept saying something was wrong. And of course, everyone else didn't see it but me. And then now that I've convinced myself that it's all in my head, that it was just me thinking that that it would be better. And, Evan's CO2 levels were through the roof, and I didn't know, like, that wasn't, I mean, I didn't even know what CO2 levels were until that day. and I remember having the conversation with Sam, and they're like, bring him in, see what's going on, and then make a decision whether you want to come home or do whatever there, because you can always verbalize over a DNR. So even if at the moment something is crashing, I can verbally say, I need you to do this. And my word will always go as long as it's apparent, it will always trump whatever's on paper. So, we get, we get there, get to the hospital that we absolutely love, and it is the first time a, this resident who we saw happened to be on Peds at, and happened to see Evan in the ER, and he comes comes in, and we did we did a a, a blood gas draw, and he just comes in like a bull in a china shop. He's grabbing stuff from drawers, telling me he has to intubate immediately, that Evan's going to die and like all this stuff. And I just remember standing up in between him and Evan being like, no, 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 no. Don't touch him. Like explain. I don't have time to explain. He's going to die. And I was like, and I just remember being like, what on, like just this heavy weight. And I was like, okay, explain to me why you think that. And he was like, his CO2 levels are through the roof and all this stuff and how bad he was. And I just kept saying, can I, let's talk to an art, let's get a respiratory therapist down here. Because we have dealt with all respiratory therapists. They've all met Evan. Like someone is going to be able to explain this a little bit better. So they get us up on the floor and we see an RT who we've known and loved forever. And she was, (laughs) the number we were given by him was different from the number she gave me. And the number she gave me was like three times the amount of what he gave me. So I panicked and was like, so from the 40, not even 40, probably like the 20 minutes that we took it, or he's just having this conversation to her having the conversation, it's gone up that much. And he's already saying that he's going to pass like what on earth? And she was like, no, no, no. The number you were given was wrong the first time. That was another number that also shows that he's in critical condition, but we need to do a bypass. And I was like, is a BiPAP going to work? She's like, only time will tell. So we ended up doing a BiPAP. So we, even though we had a DNR, we still did a BiPAP. Um, and we said if the BiPAP didn't work, we weren't going to do anything. Like we were going to let Evan go. So we put the BiPAP on within, I would say, a couple hours. Evan was back. Like he was perky, smiling, laughing, just loving life and just doing great stuff. and um, remember, we said 14 days. Well, Evan's birthday is the 19th of October, and we went on, in on the 1st. 14 days rolls around, and Evan can't get off the bypass. Every single time we try, he tanks. So it was like, okay. So the conversation went from when we take him off to is he going to go home if we take him off? So I kept telling them, like, let's just get, can we just keep them on till the 18th or till the 19th or the 20th, because his where it takes the 19th, and, and then have the conversation the day after. Let's just get them to three. That was my goal. Three and the key, we're not hurting anybody by being on it. Let's just get to three. Well, I didn't know all of my family, all of my mom's family was flying in from all over the country to come celebrate three with Evan. Because we didn't know we were going to be in the hospital. And they already bought all their plane tickets way before. Because we were going to celebrate him being three. And they come. And they all surprised me. And I remember we did his birthday in the hospital downstairs. Even though Evan wasn't there. We had all all of our friends showed up. And we all just kind of celebrated. I FaceTimed Evan in. um, And then that night, we talked to, maybe it was the next day. But we talked to the, it was the next day, the doctors, and the doctors were just like, you need to tell your parents and your family that like Evan might not be coming home. Like that's a, r- a realistic thing. Even though he's smiling and laughing and he's himself, he might not be coming home, depending on whether or not I could get a BiPAP at home if I was even approved. Because if insurance in the state says no, like I, I'm screwed. So I remember, we came home and my mom, of course, is like cornering me in a corner, tell, asking me like everything that they've asked me. And finally, I just I told her, I was like, they don't know if he's going to come home. And I said, that's a conversation we have to have with all of you guys. So, Sam's dad, we are, I mean, everybody was at the house and Sam's dad was about to leave. And I say everybody, all of my family was at my house. So, my grandma, my aunts, uncles, my cousins, everybody was here. And then Sam's dad came over and Sam's dad was about to leave. And my mom, like, yelled at us, was like, you need to t- say something, because we were kind of like, we'll tell them later, like, <laughs> I mean, nobody wants to hear that news, we're having such a great time, and we waited to the very end, and um, my mom's like, you need to say something, so Sam, we stood up, and we just told everybody, like, I know we've had some great days with Evan, he looks really good, but if we're not approved by a PIEPAT, Evan's not coming home, and we need to have some really hard decisions of taking them off, and letting them pass at the hospital, and it was like this cloud this heavy heavy cloud and everyone was crying i mean we all were crying because it's like it's not just same in my emotions anymore that conversation was we brought everybody in at one moment and that was really hard because we normally don't share it in a big group we usually tell like our parents first and then tell our siblings and then kind of work down the chain and uh, but this it was just everyone happened to be there so we told everybody and so when we told everybody, it was like this heartbreaking time, because it was like we weren't sure. But for some reason in my gut, I just, it was weird, because before we left, to even go to the hospital, when I thought he was having a bad time, I sat Evan down, I remember he was in his crib, and I talk about it often, but I don't talk about it a lot, but about God, and about heaven, and I, I just told him, I just said, your daddy and I love you more than anybody else in the world. But the one thing that loves you more than us is God. And that when you're ready, like Jesus will come down and walk you to heaven. And and we, like, I remember saying that. And I remember like trying not to cry and talking to a five or at that point, a three-year-old, like what heaven is, like who, who, why, why? And it's not even like, oh, heaven's this beautiful place. It's talking about whenever you're ready, you can go, and I told him, like, that you can go, and you can come back whenever you want, but mommy and daddy can't go with you, that we're not ready yet, you know, one day we'll all be there, but you'll have, you'll have to go before us, and that whenever he's ready, we'll, we will help him get there, but that if he's not ready, and he's willing to fight, I will always fight for him. I said, so you just need to tell me, if you're willing to fight, I will fight, so when I saw Evan on the BiPAP and he was still there, like mentally, physically there, and I had a really hard time them telling me that he wasn't gonna come home, like so hard. So the next day, it was like a Sunday, we were all driving, like I was meeting my whole family back at the hospital um, and meeting Sam up there. Sam had spent the night. And I remember vividly turning the music down and praying out loud being like god i get it i said if this is it i will understand it i will be at peace with it i will i will do whatever you need me to do and that if this is what you need me to do like just tell me but if it's not and evan is still here and still wants to fight i'm like by golly you need to be yelling it to me because right now everyone is telling me he's dying and I don't believe it. But if you're telling me he is, I will accept it. And as gracious as I can, like I will help him through this. But if he's not ready, you need to tell me like, this isn't, we're not doing this. Like this isn't what we need to do. And I remember crying and praying and but being like, I need you to just be as loud as you can be. So I turned on the music and a song was playing. It had just, the other song had just ended maybe two seconds and another song started playing and it was talking about how it's not over and how he's still fighting and that I needed to lean on God and that like, it's hard, but it's not over. And I remember just listening. I mean, I was pulling off the highway to go to to the hospital pulling off to go to the hospital and I sat in my car and just bawled and listened to the song telling me that he's, it's not, it's not done. We're not done. It's not over. Like he's still fighting. As long as he's still fighting, God will be with me and like lean on him. So they tell me the name of the person who's singing it. And I like, don't even remember it. All I remember is that it's not over. So I run upstairs and all my family, they're all Christians and they all listen to Christian music. My uncle, he plays Christian music in her church. So I was like, have you ever heard the song? And they're like, no. And I'm like, he's like, can you hum it for me? And I did. And I'm singing the song and I'm like, I know I've heard the song. Like, I know it. So I get on the, um, like the, both the two, Christian stations I listen to, and I'm, like, looking through their playlist, nothing's on there. I'm, like, I swear, I'm, like, I know exactly what time it was, it was 8.03 in the morning, like, I know I heard the song, and my dad was, my dad and my uncle sat me down and was, like, maybe you didn't hear the song, but God was playing the song for you, and I'm, like, dude, I am not crazy, (laughs) like, I am not, I swear to you, I saw, like, I heard the song, and I, he's like, well, write down the lyrics. So I did. And I'm like Googling the lyrics. I am looking up everything. And finally, I email, and my mom's even emailed the both radio stations, and nothing's coming back. So I finally email them. And I'm like, hey, what was the song that you played right before your 803 book break? I'm like, this is it's called It's Not Over. I didn't catch the person's name. It's not on your list. Like, what is it? And they said that it was an um it was a guy from Arkansas when they like they do it on their own they record their music and then they send it out and he said um that like it's this upcoming guy he's from Arkansas this is his name so it was like so I googled them. nothing really comes up so then I mean a couple things come up but then I find him on Facebook and I'm like hey really weird and out there. Did you write this song? And he said, yes. And then I told him the story that I prayed about it. And like his song was these words that I needed to hear. And he was like, that's really weird. I never sent my music to that radio station. And I'm like, how the heck did he, like in that moment, and I've always been a believer of God. And I think it's the after fact of like, I could see God's work, but not during. But that time it was like, He was using that guy's words exactly when I needed to be. I mean, I was so true when I asked him for help. I was so, there was no, I didn't have an agenda to it. Usually it's like, if you do this, I used to be like, if you do this, I'll do this. Like it was a very, and I haven't been that way in a long time, but it was like a very, I remember being very vivid of like, you tell me what to do and I will do it. Just tell me, tell me and I will get everything you need done. I'll do it. And um, Whether it hurts or not. And I just, that was like a really big turning point because it was, I mean, he even like that guy sent me, sent me um, shirts, sent me the song, sent me, I even wear his band on my wrist with Evans just because it reminds me every day that like God is walking with me and he hears me no matter what it is. He hears me, whether he's going to, what he's going to do, that's up to him. But like, I'm not going unanswered. Like, he does hear me. It's like when a parent, you tell a kid's yelling at you about something, and you can hear them, but it's like, whether you choose or not to choose at that moment, what's more important? Is it to do what they ask you to do, or whatever they're begging you to do, or is it you ignore them and let them find their own way? And that's kind of how I felt. After that, I prayed to him again, saying that if he wasn't um, going to be able to come home, to, or if he's not here to stay, Evan wasn't. To not get us approved for the bypass if and if he was going to go to just not get us approved for the bypass and just let him let him be here and we went in for a meeting on thursday so that was sunday when all that stuff happened and then we went in for a meeting on thursday because we were talking about taking him completely off the bypass whether or not i had a bypass to go home on, and that walking into that meeting we did not have a bypass and i remember Sam and I went to lunch, we had the conversation. I was very adamant that I didn't think that it was right, that we had to take them off. But if everybody agreed that I would back them 100%, that we all had to be on the same page. And then all of a sudden we are walking into the meeting and I get a phone call saying that we are approved for the BiPAP. And I was like, conversation's changing once again. Like, so it's like all these things that were happening and it's like, if he were not to turn, if he was not turning three on that month, when all this happened, he wouldn't be here today. Cause we would have done it on the 14th day. We would have taken him off and I would have never have changed that. And I never would have looked back and said, well, if we would have, would have just waited for 24 days of him being on the bypass, then we would be where we are because there's no telling. I just know myself. it Would have been 14 days. The only reason why we've made it to 18, sorry, to 19 days was because of his birthday. And to get over just celebrating that one last hurrah before him passing. And it's now been two and a half years since then. So wow. Crazy. So but but now, like whenever he has all these like um, issues with his gut and stuff like that, it's if we bring him in, he's not digesting because his body is shutting down. Whether I take him in or not, and they put him on a ventilator, is that actually gonna make a difference? Yeah. No. Is an antibiotic going to fix that? No. And my views have changed before Sam and I both wanted him to pass away in a hospital. And then now, where we are in our walk, it's I don't see him passing away anywhere else besides here. Mm. Where we can all do our daily life things with Evan, still love on Evan, but still kind of walk through our own time. Without a DNR, there's an investigation always. Mm. And what that looks like is your child passes, so it's super traumatic that your nurse, if it's on, she has so many minutes before she calls 911 and she's supposed to call immediately. And when you're home with your child, if you don't have a DNR, you're supposed to call 911 immediately. And what that looks like is not only does EMSA show up, probably the fire department and also the police. And what they do is they immediately take your child. There's no like holding your baby, mourning him. It is, they take him away and then they sit you down and ask you 101 questions. Even though you know the reason why your child passed is because they're terminally ill, where these officers coming in aren't trained for terminally ill. They're trained for homicides and other things like that. So they're asking you questions that are hard because you're like, I would never hurt my child. And like, Yes, there are people out there that are ill and sick and would hurt their children, but like for the majority of us, like we want our children to live and to go through that traumatic part and then have, and I haven't like, I mean, have anybody question me as a parent and if I did anything wrong. And I, for me, that's what got me was when he had that big seizure. And knowing that if he passed at home, it would be a million times worse of what than what I was doing in that hospital day. And um, one of the reasons why we did a DNR was I didn't want I wanted that time with Evan even after he passed where it wasn't this what's next on the checklist so I don't get in trouble. Like, my child just died. If I want to hold him, I should be able to hold him. If I want to bathe him, I should be able to bathe him. Like, if I want to change his clothes, I should. But like, calling 911, you can't do any of that. Like, all that's quote-unquote evidence of the death of the child. So if you bathe them, like, you can't, you're not allowed to, which is, like, for for a parent that's going through that, Oh, I just couldn't wrap my head around somebody telling me that I did something wrong to my child even after the fact that he passed. And that's why the DNR was one of the biggest, besides that event that we had, knowing that from other parents, and what they went through that's why I wanted a DNR at home so in case it happened it wasn't this it's already traumatic I didn't want this I didn't want everybody showing up my house and then not being able to grieve the way that I wanted to
0: grieve right feeling like there's some blame in you and your role in that and I've also heard that um that if there's any other children in the home that they immediately remove the children until that investigation Mm -hmm. has been um I guess completed
1: yeah. And I think most parents that have social needs kids can like back it up with information, hospitals, doctors who've seen the babies or the children, but like, still you got to get them on the phone. You have to have them talking to the right people and you have to have them answer in the correct way. So it's not like I can show them a piece of paper saying like, well, this is what Evan has. Or like the state even knows that's what he has because I'm on TEFRA, but it's like, who's to say what that would look like? And I didn't want to go. I didn't from what I've talked to people who children have have passed, it was that they like the time with their children afterwards, whether it's having family members come in and say goodbye at the home, or if they do want to bathe them, or do one last rock, like rock it in the rocking chair, or their one last, what they want to do with them. Um, And I just think that's really sad because there's, I, as a parent should never have to think I shouldn't have to plan for that. Like, I shouldn't have to plan whether or not, like, how I want things to go.
0: So, kind of to wrap this piece up, I'm just curious: Do you constantly have, or are y'all still involved with the palliative care, the hospice yes. and palliative care? Okay, so that so he's had that since he he's, was mm-hmm, two. Yeah. Do they come twice a week, unless I ask for more? And and I think that that's something I want to make clear to families is that because you become part of a palliative care system or because you were put on palliative care it does it does not necessarily mean
1: death is like happening in the next few weeks so and also too you can start on palliative care and then your child can get better and you can get off of it you don't have to stay on it with evan's diagnosis and his um his prognosis that's the reason why we stayed, because there is an end to Evan, and we all know that. Like, it's just went, and like, like I said before, like, we are definitely on borrowed time. Like, there's no, there's no question. Like, two and a half years later, we shouldn't, we should, we should be here, Right. Well, what we were told at six months, this is a miracle. Hey, I should be in the gallery. <laughs>
0: this is all bonus time this is yeah. all more icing on the cake time and we're going to make the best of it time so we're yes. going to do the swimming pool as a as a party
1: of four time. Yes. So. and we also do the bucket list which is another thing we could talk about later um, uh, but the but the bucket list was another thing that kind of pulled me out of that daily grief so it's having something to look forward to yeah all right we've got some podcasts lined up don't we <laughs> This is why like, I would really, I do like talking about Evan and I do think that a lot of things help people with special needs, but just even with their grief.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.